Warning, this is not your father's history. This is not the history your coach taught you in high school. And you won't find it on the History Channel either. No, you see, this is the history your mother warned you about. This is History Against the Grain. Your hosts, Chris Paget and Josh Weiner. We don't believe you, because we the people. Episode 4, you say you want an industrial revolution. Good afternoon, Josh. Good afternoon, how are you? Yeah, I'm not doing um, half bad. That's all you can ask in these times. No, half bad in the, in the time of quarantine is twice as good, I think. Yeah, well, I mean, it literally means you're half good, too. That's another way you could put that. <laughs> hey, you know, I read something yesterday. I thought uh, it was entirely uh, apropos of our uh, our podcast history against the grain and some of the themes we've been pursuing and i wanted to, to just throw it in quickly here in our introduction sure. today that in the western states you know california oregon and washington the governors have put together a little alliance uh, to help facilitate the uh, continued public uh, health administration but also the opening as i say the opening back up of society and i looked at their their statement uh, the so-called Western States Pact, I assume, will be its own sovereign nation someday. Uh, but in the uh, in the language, they said COVID nineteen doesn't follow state or national boundaries. Wow, so I think they've been listening. You I know, can only I, conclude they may have been listening. I think they listen. I, I, I crunched numbers. I think one in four Americans have now listened to our podcast. <laughs> I'm not very good at math, though. I'm not sure that's right. Well, we're going after the other three regardless. We got to get them, yeah. Uh, so you got some, we got some, some news about the podcast as well. You created something. Why don't you talk about that? Well, we have indeed established now a web presence, uh, History Against the Grain website. Uh, and most excitedly, I'm, I'm here to tell you, we have our own domain name. Nobody uh, as yet had, had been inspired to put together a historyagainstthegrain.com uh, domain name. So we have it, we own it, and our, uh, our listeners, our fans, our critics, and those folks who are just plainly confused by what we're doing can go to the website, www. I get the third W on there? www.historyagainstthegrain, all one word, .com. Nice. Yeah, that was a labor of love for you. It was a kind of a fever fever dream uh, last week. I thought I, I thought it might have been. You, know, you get a fever in this age; it, it's worrisome. But it turns out it was just a creative fever to put that website up, and it's in its raw state. Think of the Beatles performing as the Quarrymen in Liverpool, and that's where the website is right now. But we all know where that's going to go, right? We need Ringo to join. That's the that's going to be the secret sauce. It's the <laughs> second time we've talked about Ringo already in four episodes, so that's good. He's made it into half our episode. Yeah, that's right. So speaking of that, I have a very disturbing thing that happened to me. Well, let's 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 tamp that down. Disturbing is a little a uh, little more severe than I meant. But I was talking to my dad, who's a, a big fan of the podcast. Uh, he calls and does post game with me after he listens. And I was telling him what we were going to do for this one, and he said, "Oh yeah, you talked about that in this other place." And I said, I did. I do not remember talking about that at all. So we're three episodes in, and I'm already forgetting stuff we talked about in one of the three episodes 
that we've covered. So that doesn't speak well to my 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 brain at this point, <laughs> which is mushier and mushier the longer I stay inside and only converse with people through a TV screen or through a computer screen. You know what? I'm going to cut you some slack there. That that's an occupational hazard of what we do. You know, we just repeat ourselves a lot, and when they tell us they've heard it before, we say, "Well, you know, it's for emphasis." So. Yeah, there you go. Yep. No, I was I was flabbergasted. I, I had no no recollection of ever saying that before, but uh, apparently it's in the record somewhere. So uh, I apologize to all listeners if I repeat myself. But uh, yeah, like like Chris said, it's just for emphasis. It's not because because my brain is. Uh, Malto meal. Well, and it's certainly not because you just had a birthday, my friend. Yeah. 23 years old. Can you believe it? I know. You're as sharp and as quick as the young point guard you always were. That's right. Always wished I could be. We'll say it that way. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So thank you. We move effortlessly from musical to sports metaphors on history. Against as we must. There's no real sports, so we can only use metaphors. That's, that's <laughs> the best so we can do right now. Well, we're going to roll out another segment uh, of love and hate today. And uh, I'm going to step uh, aside for just a second so you can explore the interiority of your own passion. I, I hate to say hate, but that's what we call it. I know. It's, it's so funny how we've become more and more uh, turned off by our own segment, right? Having to do the hate is a real, it's a real challenge. Uh, but this is one that I, I feel pretty strongly about, something I think a lot about, and that's a, 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 a group of people that you probably see often in your lives, too often we'll say. You see them on television, they're your bosses, they're your administrators, and this is a class of people I call the smart, stupid people. <laughs> and <clears throat> these are people that have these cultural signifiers that suggest intelligence, but there's no there there. Hmm. And so... You know, one way I think about this as well is that they're, they know everything and understand nothing. And what, you know, it's kind of been highlighted to me as I observe these smart, stupid people is that what we call intelligence is really just this arbitrary mix of knowledge and skill and wisdom, which are all valued in ways that are heavily culturally determined. You know what I mean by that? Sure. I'm, I'm often fulfilling that role myself, but go ahead. Yeah. So, so knowledge would be, you know, just knowing something about a subject. And, you know, certain no bits of knowledge are, are uh, valued higher than others. But, you know, you can, you can be knowledgeable about a subject. And when you talk about the subject, you sound intelligent to people who are not knowledgeable about that subject. And there's a set of skills and skills are the ability to do things. And sometimes those skills are also confused with intelligence. So, you know, we, we are both fans of people whose skill is throwing a 29-inch diameter ball into a hoop. But people don't generally confuse that with intelligence. Not to say that basketball players are not intelligent but it's a skill that's seen as separate from intelligence versus, for instance, being able to code, right? And code, by contrast, is often associated with intelligence, but I would argue it's really just a skill. Right. And then the last category is wisdom, which I see as another word for just self-awareness or humility. And this is where things really fall apart, I think, for a lot of people who, are, who have those culturally signified aspects of intelligence. They have no self-awareness, they have no humility, and that really brings us back to uh, Harvard University, the subject right. two episodes ago, was that? Yes. And indeed. then uh, Silicon Valley, your, your, home, your home base as well, which is full of these smart, stupid people who believe that their skills in coding 
means they have intelligence about the world. I'm already relieved, I'm already relieved by this because, you know, back in college, I took a course in Pascal yeah. language programming and I was terrible. Mm -hmm. So what you're telling me, it wasn't because I wasn't intelligent. No, no. Your skills were just... I hear I've been laboring under that false assumption all these years. Right. So, so, you know, just kind of what we see now is that the skills that we value, we confuse for intelligence. The skills we don't value, we see as unskilled labor, for instance. We see that term all the time. But neither are really indicative of, of intelligence. And what we have is this elite in this country, many of whom went to the finest schools, the prep schools, the Ivy Leagues and all this kind of stuff. And they confuse the advantages they had, they confused the, uh, the privileges they had for actually having some kind of wisdom, some kind of awareness about the world. And this is why we get all these disastrous new technologies that people come up with because they can without any sense of the implications of it. They don't understand the world around them. They understand how this stuff is going to play out in the world around them. And it's a big source of a lot of the problems we now have with our economy kind of based around these smart, stupid people who are making many of the key decisions in our world, but have no sense of for, for instance, in our own subject history. And without that sense, they're constantly, to use the old Twitter joke, reinventing the bus every six months. Every six months, some, some tech bro in Silicon Valley reinvents the bus and thinks they've come up with something new uh, because they lack so much understanding about the way the world actually works. So smart, stupid people. That's my, that's my hate for this week. Uh, this group that is burning our world down as we speak. You know, I'm going to say, and this is only really an initial foray into a deep sea of hate uh, where these folks are concerned. Is that fair also to sure. say? There's, 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 oh, there's more, more depth. depth. We got a, Silicon Valley is a, um, is a topic all unto itself. But this would have turned into a 45-minute segment if we had fully dug into that morass. Oh, believe me, I was digging in. But, but smart, stupid people, I like it. You know, my love is, is, is going to be quick and clean, and it's uh, related to our time spent now in, in quarantine. In a word, uh, I guess it's, it's a name in a name, uh, Patrick Stewart. Lovely man. Uh, for, for those of you folks who were either diehard fans of the uh, Star Trek uh, Next Generation show, or in this case, uh, followers of its star, Patrick Stewart, the great uh, classically trained actor, uh, and fan favorite Patrick Stewart, who's now running his own uh, daily Instagram uh, post by reading uh, each day a new sonnet, uh, more or less in numerical order, because apparently, and Josh, I know you're a Shakespearean, you know this already, the sonnets are numbered. I think it ranges up into the 150-something. Um, Shakespeare is busy, uh, that's for sure. Uh, but uh, Patrick Stewart, and what is called the Sir Pat Stew Instagram uh, post that does a daily sonnet reading. Uh, and there's something about it that is undeniably lovely. Is it his classic training, his mellifluous and trained British uh, kind of clipped accent, his, his uh, cadence, his, his, his Shakespearean ability to rise and fall and inflect 
with the lines of the sonnet. You know, I'm, look, normally I'm not a huge fan of the iambic pentameter. It's too many rules for me, you know. But with Patrick Stewart, Sir Pat Stu, you just ride a lovely wave. Uh, and for a time, I think, uh, find yourself comforted somehow uh, uh, by the, the art and artistry of both Shakespeare's words, uh, but also Patrick Stewart's ability to deliver them. I love it because that's such a nice counter to what I was saying. Because here you have in, in a guy who could be a smart, stupid person, right? He has all the cultural signifiers of, of being intelligent, but what he, he has that a lot of people don't is that wisdom, that's, that self-awareness, that humility that makes him such an engaging presence and, and somebody you want to root for because of that. Agreed. Uh, it's both, because Shakespeare, we often say, you know, there's, there's weirdly is a pretension of people who quote Shakespeare, people who affect some knowledge of Shakespeare often come off as pretentious. Uh, but here he is sitting in his home and, uh, in what I can only describe as, as convincingly unpretentious style uh, and without a lot of affectation, uh, providing just that, that lovely experience and really in its own way brilliant as you, as you suggest. So yeah, love, love it. All right, so as we move on to segment three, uh, what you're gonna talk about is the idea of civilization, um, which is a, a concept that is so hard to, to identify in many ways. It has so many, I talk about signifiers, there's so many signifiers behind the idea of civilization already. You say it and it instantly conjures up these images in, in students' heads and people's heads more broadly. So talk to us about clarifying the idea of civilization. Well, I'm, I'm happy to do that. And I want to provide a suitable segue into what will be our main segment for the day, which is to say uh, your more global riff on civilization uh, and revolution and the environment, and a lot of things that concern us uh, as historians on this podcast. So, yeah, let me get right into it. You know, the, it occurred to me, Josh, that the pandemic has revealed the, the, the crass emptiness of some of our more well-worn uh, platitudes uh, about American exceptionalism uh, in particular. You know, it's always been a kind of benighted optimism, you know, this idea of American exceptionalism, the we are the world uh, sort of gloss on, on our, our history and our, our habits as a people. But in the time of pandemic, you know, a lot of that is, is ringing especially hollow because as it turns out, we're no more exceptional, uh, no less susceptible, certainly in the case of the contagion, you know, to all the maladies visited upon us by the coronavirus. Uh, and that includes everything from, you know, not enough tests and, and ventilators, and public health measures to our own political responses and what I think is the utter insufficiency so far of the uh, political responses, certainly nationally, to help people uh, who, who need it the most. So uh, I couldn't help but think of, of, you know, in historical terms of how this might, you know, relate to the way we often view our own past. Uh, and yeah, that term civilization, it's, it's a troublesome word, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, I mean, I think particularly because we get that word civilized from it. And that is, is such a loaded term, right? Yeah, because it often implies more than just a strict historical definition. It implies some kind of either exceptional or, or morally superior quality. 
that then allows us to do that kind of us versus them, uh, civilized versus uncivilized. I mean, you don't have to ask anybody if, if they're called uncivilized, what that means. It's a pejorative, right? It's an insult. Absolutely. Uh, so I want to move away from that. You know, I want to get to, to a more uh, sort of categorical meaning you know, of, of the word, and particularly in historical terms. It's still a very useful term, but we have to unpack all that uh, baggage uh, from it for it to do any real good for us. And the example I want to give of where we can use the concept of civilization to gain insight, I think, uh, is in the case of the American West. And I'm just going to give a little snapshot because, again, I want to lead into your uh, more global piece on it. But we often invest in the idea of the American West, the history of the American West, a lot of that baggage of exceptionalism. And we even get uh, sort of rhapsodic about it. If you think about the song, America the Beautiful, uh, for amber waves of grain, for purple mountains, majesties above a fruited plains. Uh, this is very interesting, uh, this rhapsody of the, uh, the American West, because, you know, up until the Industrial Revolution, and, and that being our other great theme for the week, nobody saw, saw the West as a fruited plain. Uh, or even with amber waves of grain. And, and the reason for that is, uh, and, and by the way, it was marked on most maps, that is English language maps, it was the West, the Trans-Mississippi West was labeled the Great American Desert, which would be sort of antithetical, one would think, to a fruited plains or, you know, that kind of Edenic image uh, that is later, it is invested with. Uh, and I can say about this that one of our favorite historians, Hayden White, uh, would call this sort of view, this exceptionalist view of the American West, an escapist history. An escapist history, which serves the needs of bringing large societies, uh, that is, populous societies, where most people are strangers to one another. It gives them some kind of common ground uh, by mythologizing the past. Uh, offering a common or shared story, usually built around simple virtues, right? So the American West, rugged individualism, hard work, independence, family, piety, that that kind of escapist history is a lot easier than confronting what Hayden White would call the burden of, of history. Uh, that is the more, uh, the messier, more contradictory, less self-validating version of the past. And, and I would say, though, that the problem with it, the problem with mythologizing and rhapsodizing uh, the past, in this case, the American West, is that it, it really is more myth than, than history. And it doesn't really give us much of a roadmap, you know, for determining what uh, we might do next. I mean, after all, the West, and you're going to get into this later, the, the West wasn't a this, this idea of the West, this ideal of an Edenic West, of fruited plains and such, wasn't a moral choice, you know, that, that Anglo peoples made to settle this West. It was a response to an environmental opportunity, an environmental opportunity driven by the material interests of the Industrial Revolution. Now, in the national myth history, we prefer to see this as a story of simple farmers, homesteaders, you know, little houses on the prairie, as sort of the seedbed of America's, you know, salt of the earth democracy. 
And I think it's because once humans start crossing environmental boundaries, they, they often start thinking of themselves somehow as above nature, therefore. But the fact is, our lives are, so, so in other words, you conquer the plains, you cross the plains, and somehow you've conquered nature. But, you know, our lives are still radically dependent on and continue to play out within the specific environmental constraints of the areas that we live, the regions we live. And so even when we create models of civilization, and what I'm going to talk about here, you know, and, and just briefly define, and you can do it at greater length, civilization simply being a model of human society that sees large numbers of people concentrate into close areas. I mean, at its most basic, it's a decision about how to best exploit the environment for the greatest number of people. Now, okay, so what I want to suggest here uh, as we lead into your piece is that in doing so, in creating civilizations, and particularly in the case of the American West, we're not escaping nature. We're not eclipsing nature. We're simply creating a new model of an environmental dependency that is at the basis of all civilizations. And it's easy to forget that in this case, the story of the West, you know, it coincides with the Industrial Revolution. I mean, it always kind of confused me as a kid as I was watching those cowboy westerns. You know, they seemed out of time somehow to me. And I'm going to come back to that in a second. But in fact, all that was playing out uh, in America during the time of the Industrial Revolution and, and the environmental changes that are going to underwrite that civilization of the West are what the environmental historian William Cronin calls uh, second nature. Uh, and a new geography of capitalism. And once you sort of get this, you can begin to read the history of the American West through, say, a collection of photographs. The Library of Congress has a great collection of Western photographs from the 19th and early 20th century. And in fact, I've posted some of them on our, our website, History Against the Grain website. I would encourage people who are interested to take a look at them. Podcasting doesn't necessarily lend itself to visuals. Uh, but from the tall grass prairies, you know, of what he calls, of what Cronin calls first nature, that is the, the prairies as the Anglo people found them, the tall grass prairies, which are cut and plowed and cultivated into those amber waves of grain mentioned in the song, you know, where the landscape of fields and, and farms serves as a kind of urban hinterland to literally feed the industrial revolution in the East transforming those wide open prairies into a productive market-oriented landscape of fields and fences of alien grasses, no more prairie grasses, but things like European wheat, of alien animals, famously no longer the buffalo, but rather, you know, European cattle. And the people themselves are alien. That is the Anglo-speaking peoples, the Euro-American peoples who come to the West themselves are imports, right? And if you look at the, the sort of the ambrosia of the farmer's market that is produced in that, that newly reinvented West of second nature, peaches, melons, squash, potatoes, pears, cucumbers, uh, even corn, none of that is native to the prairies. You know, uh, maize comes from Mexico, right? It wasn't native to the northern prairies. Buckwheat, cabbage, carrots, tomatoes. I mean, the, law, the list goes on. It's a kind of Edenic paradise. 
but it was all foreign to the land itself, had to be imported there, if you will, uh, as part of this extension of an industrial revolution now that was requiring a greater scale of population, you know, at the basis of, of the definition of civilization itself, a growing population of people be fed, particularly Eastern peoples working in factories and living in big cities and such. And so, you know, the 21 million bushels of weed and corn and other farmers' produce that will pass through Chicago in the year 1856, that's 21 million bushels of farmers' produce that's going to pass through Chicago in 1856 on its way east, gives us a much truer picture of the West, I think, than all the stories and songs and rhapsodies and shared in our mythic memory banks. Uh, because that produce, you know, as soon, as soon as it left the farmer's field, was no longer even recognizable as his property. It now existed abstractly as a price value traded in a giant market exchange centered in Chicago called the Board of Trade. It was stored in grain elevators, shipped by rail, bidded over by stock traders who would never actually even see it. You know, in his book, Nature's Metropolis, uh, William Cronin writes, by peering into that underlying order, one can come to see the blueprint that made city and country into a single region, economy and ecology into a single system. The vocabulary of the human landscape, writes Cronin, second nature has another name, and it is under that alias that one must sooner or later grapple with its meaning. And that second name he refers to is a geography of capitalism, that the West is a geography of capitalism brought about by the Industrial Revolution. And I tell you, you know, Josh, once you adopt that perspective, everything looks different. You know, even the fabled and iconic Western cowboy, uh, as we remember him, who belongs preeminently to that mythic history, you know, uh, more than he does, you know, the, the mythic history of the dime novels and the Hollywood movies, the TV westerns, et cetera. But the real cowboy, Cronin would argue that he's a part of an industrial workforce, a wage earner that extended from the stockyards and slaughterhouses of Chicago to the bur burgeoning uh, cattle ranches of the West. I mean, look, to the extent that he lived in dusty rural places around horses and stock animals, uh, yeah, the cowboy dressed differently than slaughterhouse workers, but his clothes were every bit as much a product of an industrial revolution that produced, among other many commodities, ready-to-wear clothing for industrial workers, including cowboys. So in that sense, yeah, the cowboy, the vaunted cowboy, was even thoroughly integrated into industrial system of mass production as much as the steel worker in Pittsburgh or the textile factory worker in Lower Manhattan. And you know, that, that helps explain why I was so confused as a kid by all those cowboy westerns. Cowboys seem strong, strangely out of time, but you know, you think about it, the evidence was there all along, hidden in plain sight. Railroads, mm. somebody was always robbing a train. Banks, somebody was always robbing a bank. I mean, what better emblems of an industrial revolution than railroads and banks, right? Yeah. And it's why today a global, <laughs> a global banking conglomerate like Wells Fargo Still uses what as it's still got the stagecoach. A stagecoach, that's right. And so, yeah, what this capitalist industrial second nature did was it rendered nature itself basically unrecognizable from its original form. You know, 
whether it was a swift and armor canned ham or a bird's eye frozen corn or the cowboy himself, it was all rendered, you know, mythic and, and rather unrecognizable in the industrial revolution and the mass marketing of modern uh, society. And I think, you know, ultimately we can get into this later in, in later episodes, Ian, but you know, there's something even more, more tragic to this. You, know, you think about the West and we know about the extinction of the buffalo, the near extinction of the buffalo. Think about the human inhabitants, the native peoples of the West, you know, who became fodder for the industrial culture of Anglo and, and European Americans and that, that story of American exceptionalism, bit players in the Wild West shows, dime novels, again, Hollywood Westerns, otherwise, uh, you know, caricatured, romanticized, and emblemized as, as we know in our own time, team mascots uh, in the sports leagues of, uh, of white, uh, white folks. So yeah, like uh, so much of American history, the stuff we teach in the schools, the escapist history, as Hayden White would call it, where the narrative of shared past works at the behest of a national story, the history itself is rendered as virtually unrecognizable as one of those canned hams. I like it. Uh, two, two things I wanted to, to kind of note or, or add to it. Um, so you, you're kind of referencing your, your idea of civilization is, I think, coming from Felipe Fernandez Armesto. Is that one of your... Yeah. So his, his sure. thing is civilization as not a thing you have or don't have, but a continuum. To the degree to, to the degree that you um, interfere in the natural processes of the environment, you are further along that line of civilization, or, or less far along that line of civilization. And it's a really interesting way to look at it, and it makes it not so much a black and white issue. And you know, you can see that late hunter, uh, late gatherers, for instance, you know, the, the groups that are around just prior to agriculture, the Neolithic period, they're they're changing their environments a lot. They're cutting down, uh, you know, uh, plants that are not useful to them. They're burning down forests. They're clearing land to make uh, hunting grounds for their animals. They're having an effect on the environment. They're not just kind of passively going to the, to, to the world, finding what they can and plucking what they can from whatever's out there. They're literally constructing environments. You know let, me, let me just throw in, that's an excellent point. I want to learn because Native American people did the same. They humanized their landscapes as well. So I don't mean to suggest a false binary between a nature right. untouched. No, I, I wasn't, I wasn't hearing it that way. I just, that was okay. uh, something that occurred to me as you were talking. Uh, we went to Shenandoah National Park in Virginia a few years ago. And there's a, a spot there, a famous spot called the Great, I think it's called the Great Meadow. And it's this beautiful meadow. I love, meadow's one of my favorite uh, geographical features in a, mm -hmm. called the Great Meadow. And it's, it's kind of emblematic of this, uh, you know, this pre-settlement period of, of, you know, what this would have looked like prior to, to colonization, all this kind of stuff. And you start reading about it, you realize the Great Meadow was created by, by, by native groups who were there and they created it by constantly burning it every year. And by burning it, they kept the trees away, which created this massive meadow. And then as it became a national park, the national parks are in theory supposed to maintain nature, but the way they decided to maintain nature was by continuing to burn this, this meadow every year to keep the trees away, to kind of freeze it in the state that had been created by the native people there prior. So it's this weird thing where the natives themselves become nature, right? And we don't see them as, as being shapers of the land because, you know, what they did was, was part, of the, part of the environment and what we do is going against that environment in some ways. That's a great point. And then the other point I wanted to make, or the other thing I wanted to add is that, you know, you're talking about all the grain that's coming through Chicago and, and the implications for industrialization and the stockyards and all this kind of stuff. But a lot of that stuff wasn't just going to the East Coast cities. It was actually crossing the Atlantic Ocean on steamships one of these, you know, the great inventions of the Industrial Revolution. And it's in, in some ways the wheat that's coming from 
you know, the prairies of the United States, the, the beef that's coming from Brazil and Argentina that allows Great Britain to become an urban society, right? So by 1850, Great Britain is, has more than half its population living in cities. And the only way that can work is if their food's coming from somewhere else. Uh, and so to a large degree, it's coming across the Atlantic Ocean on these steamships, which can now take food across large bodies of water like this quickly enough and cheaply enough to make them affordable for, for uh, uh, you know, for consumers in Great Britain. And in some ways, the success of those farmers in the Great Plains, the success of the herders in Argentina and Brazil and the American West um, really was the end of, of a lot of farmers in Great Britain who now had to compete against a landscape they could not compete with, these, these very um, uh, rich agricultural lands of, of the Americas. So it, it kind of ties into this larger story of, of industrial civilization, really. Well, I love that because the little house on the prairie becomes so romanticized as this purely local human story. But really, we're talking about farms that were connected globally mm -hmm. to, to markets uh, across oceans and across uh, continents. Absolutely. And there's winners and losers in that, to be sure. People who benefit and people who are bearing the cost of, of this uh, global industrial capitalist revolution that's, that's happening. So I love it. Nice job. Yeah. Well, and I know you got some fabulous thoughts uh, on that that global story. Uh, as we 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 uh, allow ourselves today to take uh, an even bigger journey through time and place. So this is your drum solo. This is your drum solo, yeah, my friend. I'm I'm ready. So this is um. You know, ultimately, I want to talk about the Industrial Revolution, but I want to kind of talk about revolutions in general, the, the, really the key revolutions in the story of human civilization. And so that includes not just the Industrial Revolution, but the Agricultural Revolution that preceded it. And I want to talk about the, the different ways we, we understand those two revolutions, the different ways we talk about those two revolutions. Um, but I first wanted to, to kind of tell a story, uh, paint some, some word pictures in your head. All right. So let's imagine we're recording this podcast. That should be easy to do. I'm enjoying myself. I'm feeling comfortable. So I lean back in my chair and I lean back so far that I lose my balance. I tumble backwards and I rolled through the window and onto my front porch. All right. So you're picturing me lying in a heap on my front porch. My wife hears a commotion. She runs in my office to see what happens. Notices the chair in the, on, on its back, sees me unconscious in a heap of blood and glass and exclaims, I knew Josh shouldn't have had cereal for breakfast. <laughs> you get what I'm trying to get at there? Not Battle Creek Mission, where a lot of the cereals made. Uh, no. No. Yeah. Cause and effect. Cause and effect. The chain of causality, as I'm calling it. So in this example, the obvious thing you would do when you saw this scene is, is understand that the cause of me lying in a heap of blood and glass on my front porch was the tip chair there. But what we sometimes do as historians is we look for these chains of causality that don't exist. Now, it's possible that the fact that I had cereal, cereal for breakfast uh, had something to do with the fact that I was now lying on unconscious on the front porch. But it's not the most obvious explanation. And so this is a real challenge of history because on the one hand, we, we have to understand that, you know, to live in the present is to live uh, on top of the legacy of all previous times, right? That in, in many ways, all of history uh, is uh, is our inheritance in some ways, right? At the same time, we got to understand that doesn't mean that every single thing that happens in history is the cause of specific events that are occurring. All right. Okay. So 
let me talk about the agricultural revolution and then we'll talk about and the way it's talked about and then I'll, I'll shift to talk about the industrial revolution the way it's talked about so we talk about the agricultural revolution um i kind of want to set the scene here so it's about fifteen thousand years ago the ice age is starting to recede uh the glaciers are starting to recede the earth is warming up as it warms obviously temperatures get get higher uh there's more rainfall uh there's more seasonality instead of just you know cold climate year-round in many places there's now seasons winter spring summer fall that sort of thing and as that those changes occur the earth is going to change as well so a lot of the old plants that have survived in the colder drier temperatures and and climate begin to go away a lot of those large fat bearing animals that have been the source of of um, the success of a lot of ice age societies they begin to go extinct and what we're left with is a world that's as i said warmer and wetter but also has a much larger diversity of, of flora and fauna, plants and animals. And we're seeing now more, uh, you know, not those large fat bearing animals, but smaller mammals. Uh, we see more um, coastal fishing after about 15,000. And humans adapt to this as humans tend to do. And this is one of those fun, fun stories that, you know, it's so easy to kind of look at all the differences, compare and contrast, it's such an easy thing to do. And so it's nice when you get to these points in history where you say every human everywhere is really adapting to these conditions in the same way. And so there's these basic trends that start to emerge. And humans, for instance, uh, begin consuming diets that are more diverse than during the Ice Age. They probably don't consume as many calories per day, uh, but they're consuming a more, more diverse diet. With a greater range of flora and fauna available, humans don't have to follow herds quite as far. And so we become less mobile than we have been before. Um, some Hunters, hunter-gatherers or late foragers, as they're sometimes called, actually begin to adopt a sedentary or semi-sedentary way of life. So even before agriculture, there are people who begin settling down. In Japan from about 13,000 years ago, we've got a people called the Jamon who are building um, simple um, habitations, which are light enough to be picked up and carried from place to place. But there's some indication they're staying in, in place for maybe months at a time. And then in, in the area that we often refer to as the Fertile Crescent, this, this crescent-shaped area between about the Mediterranean and the Persian Gulf, people begin building permanent structures, permanent habitations. And as they do that, they become more and more dependent on that local environment. Once you build a permanent structure, which in, entails collecting a lot of heavy stones, piling them together, they're often plastering the inside of, of the homes as well, which is a, a very labor-intensive very expensive in terms of time and effort as, uh, as well. Once you do that, you're less likely to then want to roam far afield. This is now something that you've marked as your own. So as humans in this particular era begin setting the, settling down permanently, there now begins to be a change to the plants and animals around them. Humans have an effect on the life around them. And so for instance, uh, one example, this is a house mouse, right? So the, 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 a mouse that can specifically live off the uh, the refuse of human settlement is a um, is is one of the effects of human settlement. So these mice, uh, you know, kind of adapt themselves to getting through small spaces, getting to human homes, eating you know their supplies of grains or whatever else they they leave behind, and that's one thing that occurs. But the other thing that happens is humans, because they begin collecting food from the same places year round, uh, they begin to change and adapt the plant life around them as well. All right. So that's where we are about 11,000 years ago. Humans in some parts of the world have settled down. In other parts of the world, they've begun a process of, of settling down um, to a greater or lesser extent. At the very least, they're moving less than they had during the Ice Age. 
sometime around, you know, maybe 11,500 years ago, uh, maybe 12,000 years ago, somewhere around then, the earth uh, goes through this very volatile time climactically. Right? And so what, what uh, sorry, sorry, climatically. Uh, and so what starts happening is there's almost a return to ice age conditions. Uh, glaciers begin to grow again. And as it occurs, the world gets drier, at least certain parts of the world get drier once again. And so in these areas of the Fertile Crescent where people had begun settling down or had become fully sedentary, suddenly they're, they're, they're faced, well, when I say suddenly, I mean over the course of a few thousand years, mm -hmm. but that's sudden when you're talking on the long, long term here. Um, suddenly they have to try to survive in environments where a lot of the diversity of life that had sustained them is beginning to go away. And so what they do, as it turns out, or at least according to one version of this, what they do is they begin to rely more and more on the plants that survive. And the plants that tended to survive in these, in these climatic conditions were these cereal grasses. All right, so in this area of the Fertile Crescent, there are these huge strands of wild wheat and wild barley. And humans have been you know, uh, living off those grasses, but there was also other things they could have lived off prior to this change in the climate. With this colder, drier climate, uh, they become more and more dependent on those grasses. They increasingly begin collecting those grasses. Uh, and eventually they realize instead of going out to these areas where the grasses grew, let's just bring the seeds back to it with us and we can start growing them closer to home. And so in this kind of process, almost an unintentional process, humans by selecting seeds begin to change the nature of these crops. And eventually after about, uh, uh, I think 300 years or so of just making selections, what had been wild wheat and wild barley increasingly become domestic wheat and domestic barley. And the result is, the beginnings of this thing called the agricultural revolution. So that process is uh, been basically happened by about 11,000 years ago in the Fertile Crescent, in South America and Mesoamerica between about 10 and 9,000 years ago, a similar process occurs, not necessarily for the same reason, but humans living near these cereal grasses begin to adapt them unconsciously probably at first. And the result ultimately is these, uh, these crops, these domestic crops that can sustain large numbers of people. In East Asia by about 8,000 years ago, um, eight to 10,000 years ago, I should say, we see the domestication of things like millet a little bit later. We get rice in the south, southern parts of East Asia, um, in West and East Africa and South Asia and New Guinea and in the Andes over the next few thousand years, we all see a number of domestications. And so every other area that used domestic crops, every other area that underwent its own transition to agriculture, ultimately adopted their agriculture from one of those core areas that I just mentioned, the Fertile Crescent South and Mesoamerica, East Asia, West and East Africa, South Asia, New Guinea, and the Andes, and then everywhere else in the world, including, for instance, Egypt, which we think of as this, this home of civilization. The Egyptians didn't domesticate wheat themselves. They borrowed this, this, this skill. They borrowed this process from the Fertile Crescent. All right, so there's kind of the broad storyline. Humans, uh, over the course of a few thousands of years, making this transition from highly uh, mobile Ice Age hunters, to less mobile late, late foragers, and then uh, over the next few thousand years into increasingly agricultural societies in certain parts of the world at least. Hey, is it fair to say that it represents less of a triumph over nature, the sort of dominion over nature that we talked about in the last episode, as it does a kind of opportunity that the environment affords due to the factors you mentioned, including temperature and latitude zone and you know, soil, uh, fertility, and all those kinds of things. Uh, this wasn't a moral decision. 
that some hunter-gatherer made suddenly to embrace a morally superior way of living. Is that fair to say? Not if you ask my students. My students like to say that uh, they adopted agriculture so they would stop having to move around. They see having to move around as a unambiguously bad thing and agriculture, therefore, is an unambiguously good thing. An uncivilized no, habit, yeah. It's a civilized habit. They're, they're, who wants to move around all the time? They say they get to have their own homes now, uh, which is obviously a great thing. Um, no, you're absolutely right that it, there's nothing triumphal about it. It's a reaction to the world around them in many ways. Now, there's different explanations for this. I gave you the story of you know particular conditions that may have led to domestication in fer the Fertile Crescent. Um, we don't know. The story is probably best told in that area. It's clearest in that area. We don't always know exactly why other societies adopted agriculture in other places. Um, but you know, scholars have suggested it's a means of risk management. So potentially, what's happening in some places is that this foraging lifestyle in this more in this richer environment of the post ice age led to population growth and ultimately populations grew beyond the ability to feed those populations using these these previous um, uh, you know skills and so domestication became became a way of securing a food supply to feed growing populations well i love that because you know again a thing that's commonplace in student essays would be that therefore the foragers were just somehow not keeping up with the joneses except that when you realize hunter-gathering worked really well for a long time. Isn't that also fair to say? Well, I mean, put it this way. So agriculture has been around for, we'll say 11,000 years, right? That's, you know, you can go for prior to that or, 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 um, or earlier than that, but um, we'll say around 11,000 years. We're now 11,000 years in and things aren't, I'll just say things aren't looking so good, right? For this, for this way of life. I mean, you could say that that a lot of stuff that's going wrong is that really the result of the of the industrial revolution, but you know, still, it's been eleven thousand years since agriculture, and it seems as if we're killing our planet very quickly. Contrast that with Australia, for instance, where um, the first people get to Australia, the first migrants get there maybe fifty thousand years ago. Uh, there's some some suggest as, as uh, late as fifty five thousand years ago, or sorry, as early as fifty five thousand years ago. And when Europeans first arrived on Australia you know, in the, the late 17th century into the 18th century, humans were doing very well there, right? They had not developed agriculture. They were not um, exploiting their environment as intensively as people in other places. Uh, they hadn't undertaken this kind of technological innovation we see in some places. But what they had done is created an extremely stable way of life uh, that allowed them to survive in a very difficult environment. So how do we judge success, right? Is it how big the buildings you you build, uh, the uh, the wonder of your technology, or is it the ability to survive for sixty thousand years yeah. in a single location without destroying the entire ecology of that area? One of my favorite uh, Armesto quotes is the African bushman who was asked, "You know, why haven't you transitioned to agriculture?" And his response was, well, "Why should I when I have so many magongo nuts?" Yeah. It was by comparison, agriculture was far more labor intensive, took more time in the day, so. Yeah, sticking up for the hunter-gatherers, the foragers. Uh, it worked, right? It worked for a much longer time than, than our current yeah. way of life has, has worked. So the, then the broader point here is that we can tell the story of agriculture. We can tell it in a way in which it's not triumphal, right? Nobody says the peoples of the Fertile Crescent developed agriculture because uh, they were smarter than, than peoples in other parts of the world. Nobody tries to say that the peoples of, of the Fertile Crescent developed agriculture because there was something about their culture that made them superior to the cultures of East Asia or South Asia or Europe, uh, which either did not have their own uh, indigenous domestic, uh, agriculture revolution or had to adopt agriculture, uh, I'm sorry, or just did so later than the Fertile Crescent. 
So we end up with this, this story, this immensely important story, by the way, of the agricultural revolution, possibly the most important moment in human history, you could, you could argue. And we're able to tell that story without making recourse to culture. We're able to tell that story without telling it as a triumphal story of superiority versus inferiority. Um, we're able to tell that story while also recognizing that the first societies to adopt agriculture did not end up being the quote unquote most successful societies. In fact, those societies that first adopted agriculture were often the first societies to die off because agriculture is a very hard way of life to sustain. Are we going to get to sing songs about them and fruited plains or more? No, no, no. They, they get absent from the story. Nobody's going to write songs about them. They just disappear. And, it, you know, agriculture to really succeed on a large scale has to move to other areas that are more environmentally sustainable, ultimately. Right. So we're able to understand that agriculture is a process that occurred for, you know, these these varied reasons. Um, it's largely a result of reactions to uh, prevailing conditions. Uh, it has nothing to do, as far as we can tell, with with the culture of a particular area. It's not uh, some kind of victory of, of certain people over other people. And that leads me to the Industrial Revolution. Because when we tell the story of the Industrial Revolution, all those things I said we, didn't, we don't do with the Agricultural Revolution generally happen in our, in our understanding of the Industrial Revolution, right? The traditional explanations for the Industrial Revolution are things like Europeans are geniuses, right? Uh, that they're just smarter. There's something about them. Now, in previous eras, the argument would have been a racial argument. Right. This is essentially what was the, the, the point that's made in the 19th and 20, early 20th centuries when talking about, quote unquote, the West, is that there is something inherent to peoples of Europe, to white people, as they become thought of, uh, that made them the only people who could possibly engage in the kind of progress, to use another you know, uh, common term used in that period, that led to industrialization. Uh, and so Europeans can be seen as a progressive civilization which is in contrast to the stagnant civilizations of the East or the primitive civilizations of other parts of the world. So you get the kind of European genius, which is racial in some cases. And then as it becomes, uh, you know, not something you would do in polite company to talk about race in that way, people transition to just talking about culture. And culture, you know, I often read is just a substitute for talking about race without having to say race, right? And so then they start talking about long-term cultural developments Happening in, happening in Europe. And the reason why Europeans were the first to industrialize is because of something within the European culture. Now, cultural explanations can be interesting. The problem with cultural explanations is they're almost unverifiable, right? It's really hard to say that the reason why something happened is because, because of a specific cultural understanding or cultural trait. You know, the, the old Max Weber argument, right, about the Protestant ethic. Right? And that was a very common explanation for the rise of the West for a long time, is there was something about those Protestants. They had a, an ethic that just meant they worked harder, they saved more, uh, and that's why it was Protestant countries that made this big leap into uh, industrialization in the modern world. But again, how do we verify that other than anecdotally? It becomes a kind of catch-all, doesn't it, a, of causation? You know, right. going back to your, your charming story earlier about falling through your window. Yeah. Is that, oh, you have to say, well, they did it because they were culture bound or their culture led them to do it. or It's kind of lazy uh, causation or something. No, that's, that's absolutely right. And so the question becomes, as I was kind of alluding to earlier, you know, how far back do you have to go to tell the story? And you're going to see stuff, you know, as people try to, to explain what's sometimes called the European mir miracle, what's sometimes called the rise of the West, what's sometimes called the great divergence. Um, you know, this moment in which, or this time in which 
European societies moved on this different path from, from other societies and civilizations around the world, um, how far back do you have to go to explain it? And so some people say, well, the Renaissance is where it all happened. And after the Renaissance, Europeans run into a new path and they were unstoppable. But um, again, how do you verify that? How do you, how do you make sense of that? How do you prove that other than just it, it fulfills a certain need we have? It answers a question. But again, I would say not very um, successfully in the sense that it, it just can't be verified through data. It can't be proven in any way other than just sounding right to certain people. Right. It's a kind of, um, a kind of gospel uh, of exceptionalism. You know, whether it be Western in the sense of Western Europe or Western in the sense of the Western North American uh, landscape, right? Right. In both cases, it presumes that kind of exceptional cultural dynamic. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I think at some point later on, we're going we're to talk about doing comparative history um, because it's a very important thing that, that we, we do. But there's some problems with doing comparative history as well. And I think we see that in this narrative of the Industrial Revolution. Because what you can do in, in some cases, is you can just say, well, this place industrialized and this place did not industrialize. Therefore, we're going to compare all these aspects of these two, these two regions and anything the region that did industrialize has and the other side didn't then become, becomes the cause of this, of this innovation, right? But again, that's not good history, really. Uh, it reminds me, in fact, of this, the kind of thing that racial scientists would do like in the late 19th, early 20th century, where they take cadavers from an African-American or you know, in a, in a white person and they'd cut them up, and then anything they saw different in those bodies, they would say, this is the reason why whites are superior to blacks, right? That's bad science, and it's bad history as well. So this is why we get you know, varied explanations, like I think William McNeil at one point says, the, the moldboard plow was the source of European exceptionalism, that once they adopt the moldboard plow, uh, it, it f created this, this culture of, of working together, and that would lead to whatever happens next. I don't remember the full yeah. argument. It there's never, great, and there's great examples of like inventions, right? Technology inventions that are presumed yeah. to be the product of a certain spirit of uh, curiosity unique to that cultural group or something. Right. So but, the steam engine or, you know. Right. And, the, the, you know, the problem is that they're only seen as exceptional because of what happens next, right? There's innovations happening all, to, all the time throughout history. We tend to think the ones are most important that are created by... Europeans because we know how things are going to end up, but it doesn't actually show those things were in fact that significant double entry bookkeeping is actually another thing people have noted that Europeans developed double entry bookkeeping. And that was the reason why this capitalist world system was going to be built out of Europe. It turns out that wasn't even true by the way, but that was a, an old canard for a long time. Yeah. I was going to say it's problematic on its face because a lot of those claims of originality were more the process of cultural diffusion from other places. Right? Absolutely. Um, you know, there's ex explanations based on the competitive state system. The Europeans, because of the fact that empire doesn't kind of resurface, or at least a, a single unified empire doesn't resurface in Europe after the Roman, uh, the, the collapse of the Roman Empire, um, that you get this system of, of competing states and where there's competition, there's this drive for innovation. Um, yeah, maybe that's true, maybe that's not. It, it's, it's, there's something to that, I would, I would say at least. Uh, but again, it's, it's hard to verify. And then you get stuff about the military revolution as well uh, because of this competing state system. There's this military revolution. Ultimately, European armies and European military uh, technologies become superior to other parts of the world. All right. So again, you know, it's not that none of these have any merit. It's that they all end up 
I think, starting with the end, right? They start with a conclusion, which is that Europeans are going to be the first to industrialize. And then they try to kind of um, reverse engineer an explanation for that. Okay. So what I like better is um, a set of explanations for the Industrial Revolution that become associated with, it, with a group called the California School. And these are a group of scholars who come out of places like UC, um, UC Irvine and UCLA. I believe there's some guys at UC, USC also. So all these kind of Southern California academics. And, and the guy who becomes most well-known of this group is a guy named Kenneth Pomerantz. Um, he writes a book called The Great Divergence. And, you know, I don't think that that book is, um, is uh, critique-proof. There are, are things that certainly can be cr critiqued about the book, but his explanation and, and those of other members of this California school make a really important addition to this, this idea of, of the Industrial Revolution. What they say is that's this great divergence, this moment in which um, parts of the world take one path and the rest of the world takes another path, that the great divergence was not the result of some long-term differences between the West and the rest, to use the famous phrase, but it was the result of industrialization. To go back to uh, the story I started with, the cause of me lying in a heap of blood and glass on my front porch was not a series of long-term uh, causations that occurred you know, in the days and weeks and years prior. It was a result of my chair toppling over and me being careless and losing my balance, right? So in some cases, it's important to look at the long-term uh, you know, causes of, of things. But in other cases, the answer is right, staring you right in the face. The answer is clear. And in the case of an industrialization, I think it's pretty clear that the cause of this divergence, the cause of the so-called European miracle, was the Industrial Revolution itself. And the Industrial Revolution itself is understood by these, these guys in the California school as not the result of some long-term um, genius of Europeans, but by a number of adaptations that are necessary for complicated reasons. Uh, uh, Pomerantz talks about conjunctures, where a lot of separate uh, historical processes kind of come together in a very particular way and create an outcome. And to me, that's something that's much more verifiable. It gets the triumphal aspect of the narrative out of there. Out of there. It takes out the need to uh, elevate European culture or certainly the European race above those of other people. It allows us to look at what actually other societies were doing um, and understand what they're doing in a much more fundamental way. And it ultimately, to me, creates a much more compelling narrative of, of this massive shift in human civilizations. So yeah, maybe the English invented the steam engine because of some innate genius flowing through the blood of them, or, or maybe because they had a lot of coal in England and they were trying to dig it out of the ground and kept getting wet and needed to pump water. In other words, there, there's also that environmental imperative too, isn't there, that is almost just the luck of real estate? Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely right. That's one of the key arguments of, that Pomeranz makes is that Ultimately, you've got all these coal mines in England. You have a country that's been deforested, so they can't burn trees for heat and for cooking any longer. And so they start turning to this coal, these coal deposits, which exist in huge amounts across England. I think the figure is uh, by 1800, 90% of the coal in the world was mined in Great Britain. Something insane number like that. And, um, and ultimately, their increasing dependence upon coal creates this huge challenge for their economy when the coal mines go deeper in the ground and they start encountering the water table. Uh, and that's when the steam engine becomes necessary, right? It's not made to solve some long-term economic challenge that, the, that the Europe is having. Uh, it's not created to, to, to solve this economic disadvantage they had with the East or anything like that. 
it's created for a very specific reason, which is to get water out of coal mines. Right? And so, you know, this is, I think, one of the most compelling parts of the argument is that you look at the steam engine and there's nothing novel about the idea uh, by the time we get to the 18th century. Uh, the ancient Greeks had theorized the steam engine. Uh, you know, Europeans in the 16th century, 17th century had theorized the steam engine. We know that, that Chinese scholars around the same time, maybe 18th century, were writing about the concept of the steam engine. But the problem with the concept always was that it was too inefficient to work, right? That you could do it, you could make steam produce energy essentially, uh, or I'm sorry, produce uh, a power, but you'd have to burn so much material that it would be more, um, be more useful just to hire the labor to do the work instead, right? It'd be more costly to run a steam engine than just hiring people to do, do the same work. It turns out though that the only place where fuel was cheap enough to run these steam engines was at the head of the coal mine, coal mine, which is the exact place steam engines were needed, right? So it's, it's such a specific set of circumstances that creates this, um, this context in which a steam engine would be useful in the first place. And you can go back to like the 11th century in China during the Song Dynasty. The Chinese were the first people to really mine coal on a large scale. Um, and in the, the 10th and 11th centuries, they have this massive iron industry. It's, it's probably um, nearly as large as, as the British iron industry was in the 18th century at the, you know, the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution. Um, and that iron industry is mostly in the north. Uh, they're going deeper into the ground. They're using the coal to uh, fire these, these bellows, which were, were needed to heat up you know, the, the iron ore enough to, to liquefy it and all kinds of engineering stuff I don't really understand. But they're, they're getting there. They're on the cusp of the Industrial Revolution. What happened then was that the North was conquered by, um, by a group called the Jerkin, who took Northern China in about 1125. And once they lost the North, they lost their coal deposits. And we don't know what would have, would have happened had that not occurred. Maybe they would have gone deep enough the ground to find the water. Maybe these, these kind of uh, incredible engineers of the Song Dynasty would have figured out their own means of, of producing power using, using steam. And maybe the Industrial Revolution happens 700 years earlier in China, if not for that occurrence, right? But it's the same thing in both cases. It's a set of historical contexts that create um, uh, the need for this, this innovation as opposed to some long-running genius that exists in the, in the bones and marrow of, of these peoples. Um, you know, because the other explanation people use is that the scientific revolution was the cause of the Industrial Revolution. It had to happen in Europe because they'd had this scientific revolution where all these new concepts come about. And that's, it's, it's, it's talked about so often, right, that you think, oh, there's got to be some truth to this. And you look into it and you say, well, who was a scientist that had anything to do with the, the Industrial Revolution? Thomas Newcomen wasn't a scientist. He's a blacksmith. Right. And he wasn't a member of the Royal Society or anything like that. Um, he's just a tinker. He's a guy, you know, like our, our, uh, our heroes of Silk, Silicon Valley. They're creating these, these uh, innovations in their garages. And that's what he did with the steam engine. He lived yeah, I don't in, think Newton, I mean, uh, Newcomen wasn't reading Newton, was he? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I don't know. Maybe he was. I have no evidence of this. It's not a very good read. I, I can't, can't think he would have uh, passed his time that way. But uh, yeah, so, so yeah, the scientific revolution is important. It leads to these scientific concepts, concepts that many of which are still significant today, but there's no evidence that the scientific revolution had any real effect on the major shifts that led to industrialization. Um, the engineers who created it were not trained engineers. Uh, they were not Oxford educated, Cambridge educated. They weren't, uh, you know, guys who were generally part of the Royal Society, this famous, uh, you know, scientific institution within England. They were just dudes who happened to live in this place where these, this, this particular uh, issue was, was, was occurring.
I love how that goes into, by the way, the, the advent of the railroad. As you talk about reverse engineering all this, you know, you think, well, the railroad was part of some master plan for mass trans transportation, capital development. But wasn't it just the case that, you know, the coal mines of Durham, they, you know, you got heavy coal rock. You're trying to push it out of the mine. You put it in a cart, put the cart on, on a rail. Originally, it's horses pulling them, you know, traditional horsepower. Uh, but some, you know, some smart Alex says, hey, I think I can adapt the, the steam pump and maybe push those coal carts a little bit with the same energy source, you know. So this was as matter of fact as needing a way to get some heavy rocks, the eight miles to the coastal port in Durham so they could ship the coal to, you know, other places in England. It wasn't part of a grand design, certainly not an inherent historical mandate that the English empire arise that uh, the technology, the basic, the formative technology, the prototype technology that will eventually lead through a series of adaptations that the railroad has developed. No, that's, that's, that's absolutely right. And then, so as railroads become a viable technology, they require huge amounts of iron. And it's this need for iron that then kicked the industrial revolution into its next gear, because then you need all these factories producing the iron, you need all this fuel to, to fuel uh, that iron industry. And that kind of cycles back into this, this story of coal mining textile manufacturing, iron and steel making, uh, all of which become tied up together in this very uh, um, interesting kind of conjuncture. Well, that was such an exceptional drum solo that I think the fans are gonna demand an encore. I was all, I have nothing left. I gotta, I gotta quit the podcast. That was all my information I have. <laughs> you will be asked to forfeit your historian's license if that in fact is true, because yeah. I know it's not true. Um, but where do we go with all this? You know, it occurred to me as you were talking, you know, you mentioned McNeil in a different context. Uh, William McNeil is considered one of the, the, the deans of, of world history in, in, among American scholars. I would say that's fair. Yeah. Uh, you know, I found a, a statement of his, he said, but with civilization, uh, getting back to civilization, ambiguities multiplied and formal written history became useful in defining us versus them. So in that binary that civilization will eventually create, cultural binary, uh, right. in other words, of us versus them, we have the seeds of these stories we're trying to pick apart, these exceptional histories that have been sort of reverse, uh, been predicated upon a kind of reverse engineering of what actually happened reading meaning from the present back into the past, in other words. Uh, and so it connects up with the general discussion we're having about history, you know, against the grain, right? That we're trying to undo in effect. And we're not, we're building on this, the work of scholars like Ken Pomerantz and others. Right. But that's in effect what we're trying to do with this podcast by and large, is it not? Oh, absolutely. Right. Uh, you know, get rid of these old ideas. I mean, we, we keep talking about this idea of borders and th those borders exist in so many places. And it's not just, you know, literally the borders between nations, but it's just that the borders exist within the way we think about these things, these binaries we keep talking about uh, that simplify things in, in so many ways, but also corrupt those things and our understanding of those things in, in so many ways. And so the more I think we can get past those, those binaries of civilized, and uncivilized, of uh, black and white, uh, both in racial terms and in kind of metaphorical terms of uh, what's success and what's failure. Um, if the more we can get past those, those, those boundaries between the colonized and the colonizers, to use a famous one as, as well, uh, I think the, the richer the history becomes, the more representative it becomes, the more voices we get to hear, 
And, you know, I would argue as well, how do we measure truth? I don't know, but the truer the history becomes as well, because what we're often doing is imposing our own, you know, civilizational ideas on this history that don't always really explain the way things um, actually were in those times. Yeah, that's really well said. Uh, You know, in other words, histories that do more than just produce triumphal rhapsodies, like, you know, we are the world. Um, I don't know. I, I, we can end today with a quote, if you want, from that same William McNeil. Yeah, hit us. Uh, in his presidential address back in 1986 to the American Historical Association, one that I know you can appreciate at the time was seen by the rather hidebound history elite of the day, which was coming out of that tradition you mentioned in an earlier episode of the 19th century, you know, professionalization of, of history built around nation state narratives, right, was still very much in ascendance when McNeil gave this speech in 1986. That is, most of the historians who were listening to him had been trained in that tradition of the nation state history. Right. Uh, but what he had to say, I thought was was pretty profound. He said, in principle, the answer is obvious. Humanity entire possesses a commodity, commonality, sorry, possesses a commonality which historians may hope to understand just as firmly as they can comprehend what unites any lesser group. Instead of enhancing conflicts, as parochial historiography inevitably does, and and I love that, you know, parochial historiography, mm-hmm. that's another way of saying nation-state histories. Right. An intelligible world history might be expected to diminish the lethality of group encounters by cultivating a sense of individual identification with the triumphs and tribulations of humanity as a whole. In other words, moving away from that exceptionalism. This indeed strikes me as the moral duty of the historical profession in our time. We need to develop an ecumenical history with plenty of room for human diversity in all its complexity says Professor McNeil. And uh, again, I, I've been impressed during the pandemic with how, if we're paying attention, the lessons I hoped that we learned from this contagion, this global contagion, you know, is that nobody is either immune, i.e. therefore exceptional mm-hmm. in that sense, and that to understand the conditions that confront us, we have to move beyond our borders. No, that's absolutely right. It's a, it's a great way to end episode four. Uh, this has been History Against the Grain, and we'll talk to you again next week. Nobody is innocent. It's a sin when you play into ignorance. Another one.